Well, hugging another guy took a long time coming. I want you to know that. Uh, when we had the Lord's Prayer, people went the whole... I used to leave the room. I didn't want you touching me. You know, I didn't want any part of you people. And uh, Good morning. My name's Leo, and I'm an alcoholic. I wanted to be a cowboy. <clears throat> and uh, that didn't that didn't work out in any of my affairs. So so here I am. Uh, I come. I'm Irish and Polish, which means I'm a little confused, but I'm happy about it. And. Uh, and I, I I started out with uh, my little Irish grandmother putting her finger in a whiskey bottle and rubbing my gums while I was cutting teeth. So I'm blaming this whole mess on her. And she's not here to defend herself. She passed away before she saw her favorite become a human being. And I became a human being through uh, attending meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and the efforts of you people. For the alcoholics that are out there, we all know this morning that we're the exception to the rule. That the rule is that most alcoholics die drunk. And they don't make it into these rooms. And they don't hear these messages. And they don't recover. They die in alleys and in asylums and places that we used to visit. And it's for that reason that I'm here today because I'm one drink away from that. And I can recall all the pain that I had on May 14th, 1976. And if I couldn't recall that pain, I wouldn't be standing here today. Because it is that pain and that memory of knowing two things, that I didn't want to drink anymore and that I couldn't quit drinking, that brought me here to you this morning. And I cannot tell you how wonderful I feel that you would have this day in order to hear me speak. When you suffer from low self-esteem and no self-worth, when bartenders and cops are asking you not to come back, right? this is quite a step away from that, isn't it? So starting out as a child, I did all right. Mom died when I was four. That got me drinks right up to the end. You know that no matter what bar you're in, you can weasel that into a conversation and get a free drink. No matter what the score of the ball game or what's going on, you can turn to the guy and say, you know what My mom died when I was four. Oh, get that guy a drink. God. Oh. You know, of course, then at the end of the drinking, you don't know what the score is anyway, you know. I mean, you've been in the bar for three or four days, and they'll come in and say, what's the score of the game? You go, what game? You know, you have no idea. That's when we used to use calendars instead of watches. Remember those days? What day is it? Uh, or my God, is it payday? I hope it's payday. Another check I can waste. Right? I, uh, I became a liar, a, a bigot, and a cheat, racist, chauvinist. Alcohol took me to places that I didn't want to go and to do things I didn't want to do. It took from me the humanity that you people were so desperately trying to give me back. It gave me sponsors that could see what I couldn't possibly have seen. It gave me meetings that I didn't want to go to and things I didn't want to hear. I can tell you when I started, I started drinking when I was 15. I started drinking when I was 15 when the old man wasn't around. I mean, every, you know, a little beer and a little wine, and you know, that's, that, that was part of the deal in my, in my family. If it didn't have alcohol in it, it wasn't part of the family. We didn't go to those kind of things. But at any rate, to, if you want to just, you know, we get into a, this is a good discussion topic for a discuss for a discussion meeting. Is this the nature of my character, or the character of my nature? What we did is we stole the beer. 
<laughs> you see. So right away, I'm a thief, right? Just, just to drink. And it doesn't dawn on you that you're a thief until after you're discovered. Because you, you know, <laughs> see, the rationalization is you got away with it. Right? I can remember my sponsor. My sponsor was, and, and you had, it was big guy. And I always wanted to be big. I wanted to be big and hurt people. See, but God in his wisdom made me small so I could bounce. <laughs> and and I'd get a little belligerent and a little argumentative, you know, and then I'd get my idea of a good time was walking into a bar and finding a big guy, you know, because what happens is you can't lose when you're a little guy. If, if I got a good one in, right, all his buddies are going, you let that little guy do that to you. And if he bounced me, right, they go, why are you picking on the little guy, right? In any event, I got free drinks for the rest of the night, whether I got pounded or didn't. You know, so, and that's how it works when you're in the bar. I was a bookie for a while. I got fired from that job. I messed that job up. Uh, you know, you sell a few drugs. I did anything there was to fulfill the alcoholic prayer. And we all know what the alcoholic prayer is. The alcoholic prayer is, do I have one for later? Do I have one for the morning? And that's the most important thought for Leo on May 14th, 1976, is do I have one for later? When I come to, see, alcoholics don't wake up, they come to. I didn't know that. I had no idea that that's what alcohol. And, uh, you know, alcohol, in the big book, uh, it, it tells us alcoholics don't suffer from denial. That's an Al-Anon deal. See, <laughs> Al-Anons know the truth. See, alcoholics suffer from delusion. We create our own. We wouldn't know the truth if it bit us. If we would have known that we wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't be alcoholic if I knew the truth. I, I manipulate it and deceive myself, and I live the fantasy. I live the lie. I, I, I couldn't do it any other way. Where was I? I was. I remember now. Okay, I was being deluded on a recurring basis. So we steal this beer and we go to the boathouse over at Como Lake, and that's where you went when you were 15 when you stole beer. And uh, a strange thing happened. I drank more than the guys that I was with, and I drank faster than the guys I was with. And another strange thing happened is that when I came to that morning, I was soaking wet. And I learned the first rule of active alcoholism. The first rule of active alcoholism is, is that an active alcoholic suffers from lack of information. And there is someone in his life who is willing to fill in all that unknown information. So if you keep your mouth quiet long enough, whoever you're with is going to tell you exactly what you did and when you did it. So I came to, and I'm soaking wet, and I listened to these guys, and what happened was I did drink more than they did, and I drank faster than they did, and I ended up in the lake. And they ended up diving for me. And they dragged me out of the lake. And I didn't learn about blackouts for another 15 years. And you would have thought, or I would have thought, that that would have taught me something about drinking. And it did. I knew that if I drank, I'd have blackouts. <laughs> Didn't know what to call them, but that was just part of drinking as far as I was concerned. I started the morning drink at 19 when I was in the Air Force. I joined the Air Force. I had to get out of the house. I had to get away from the house. You know what I mean? And I did. I got out as soon as I could. But the uh, first uh, TI I had in service, what he did is I became a shift leader in charge of 360 men. It was called a yellow rope in, in tech school. And... The old yellow rope had graduated and was moving on, and I moved in, and my my uh, TI moved a uh, refrigerator in full of Falstaff beer. And every morning when the troops went to uh, morning breakfast, uh, 
he and I would sit there and drink beer. And I, that's what real men do, right? Just have, drink beer at five o'clock in the morning. I mean, it worked for me. <laughs> Never even thought about it. I'll make a long story short, you know, went to Vietnam, had a good time. A few nightmares, I'd be God being that close to death. I mean, that, that wakes you up in a hurry. I started the dead offense if I turned the light bulb out after I sent my kid brother to uh, Korea. And I turned that light bulb out. We got 1,800 rounds an hour for the next 24 hours. That was exciting. Yeah. I believed in God again. You know, how many prayed this morning? Yeah. How many didn't believe in prayer before they got here? What happened to you immediately after they opened the meeting with the serenity prayer? I can tell you my heart slowed down. I was an atheist for a while. Had trouble spelling it, became agnostic. So, you know, you grow, you know, you move along. You know, I had a plan, you know, I had a plan. You want to make God laugh? Tell him your plan. You know, he's not going to buy into it. He's not I, I can remember when I found God. The day I found God was on Mother's Day weekend, 1977 at the uh, Colombian Fathers Retreat Home in Derby. And what happened is that I started going to AA meetings, and there were a whole bunch of old, and everybody in AA was old. I went, you know, and I'm that age now, but they were old, I'm telling you. And, and these guys were near death. That's why they quit drinking, you know. And, and I can remember, you remember trying to figure out how many years you had left to drink, you know. Because, you know, well, you know, I drank for 46 years and lived in, and I'm trying to do the math. Wait a minute. Let's, let's see. I was 15, and add 46 to that. I don't have to come back till I'm 51, right? And I don't know. I couldn't even get the math straight. At any rate, what would happen is that my sponsor, my sponsor, my first sponsor was the first man I heard speak in Alcoholics Anonymous. He was six foot two. He had 19-inch arms. He was an ex-convict. And he loved me. In a way... That, that had never happened before, you know? And when we did my inventory, we did it against the wall. And he physically would restrain me because I had, I, it, it's a strange thing about alcohol. What happens was is that, you know, you, 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 you are, are an angry child, you know, and uh, in fights and that, and, and anger becomes a way of life. And, and and then it goes from anger to rage. You know, just hurtful, blind rage. Where you just lash out at everything and everyone. Right? And you're not drinking anymore. And you're still in the rage. Because I didn't know anything but rage. When I got here, that's what you had to deal with. The liar. The bigot. The chauvinist. All I, my, my concept of God was this angry, whatever it was, because that's all I could see. When you said the serenity prayer, I felt pretty good for 45 minutes, and I went back out the street and became angry again. I would never say anything to you. I'd go home and yell at Mary and the kids. Would never say anything in an A. My first day, on May 14th, 1976, I'm standing at Monty's Bar and Grill. And I've got six bottles of Jenny Cream in front of me, and I've got six shooters, and I've got my paw wrapped around a half a bottle of Jenny Cream. And for those of you who have never been in a bar when it has closed, nobody here, right? <laughs> they say, last call. Right? Last call. And every bar has this 100,000 candlelight bulb in the middle of it. 
and they turn that damn thing on. And by this time, you're one of the mole people. You don't see daylight anymore. You're always in a bar. And they turn this thing on, and I see this guy in the mirror. And I'm standing there, and I see this guy in the mirror. And I turn around to see who it is. And it's me. How long has it been since you've made eye contact in the mirror when you were shaving or putting your makeup on? At what point in time do we stop looking at ourselves so that we don't see who we are? But, I mean, we, we, we do shaving and makeup by Braille. No, we can't look at, the, at that person. In the, you know, when did that happen? When did I stop seeing Leo? When was it? How long was it when, in, in early sobriety that, that, we, that you'd go to bed and it wouldn't shut off? You know, it just doesn't shut off and you can't get to sleep. And then you do get to sleep. Then you can't, then you can't wake up. You can't get out of bed. It's called withdrawal. It lasts 18 to 24 months. So if you're new and you're having trouble sleeping, you're right on schedule. Lack of sleep never kill you. Make you a little irritable, but it won't kill you. Of course, irritability can be a way of life, too. It's a good weapon. It's a good control thing, you know. Rage keeps people in line. So they go to those damn Al-Anon meetings. <laughs> people screwed my life up. I want you to know that, all you Al-Anons. I used to refer to Al-Anons as the uh, holster upholsters. You know, put their little guns in there and shoot guys like me out of the air. You know? You know, she, she took out the garbage. She painted the trim. She mowed the lawn. Goes to one Al Anon meeting. Those are all my jobs now. <laughs> I, I say that with great affection and great love. And at one time I did. I did not like Al Anon. But I cannot tell you, or I don't have to tell you because she was here before I was, of the gift that you've given me. It's only been the last uh, five or six years of this walk that I've had with, with this woman that I realized how much she's meant to me. And I can't put it in words. Uh-huh. I, I find things that other people write and try to read them to her and I can't do it. You know, it, It's that gift that you so freely give. And, that, and that's we might even discuss that word later. <laughs> I don't know. So at any rate, I'm, uh, I weigh 207 pounds, and I'm turning yellow. My liver's trying to come over my jeans, and I'm standing at Monty's Bar and Grill. And I went into a, went back into. I don't know when I started drinking on my last drunk, but I do remember my last drink. And I got home that morning, and when I came to. That's what I, you know, that's what you do. You come to, you're down on Swan and Pearl in an abandoned paper box or if you're laying in an alley or if you're in your car or, or your home. I came to, and when I came to, Mim said to me, she said, uh, you said you were going to call AA. I want you to know that's not the news a drunk wants to hear when he comes to, you know. I'm looking for the, you know, the one for later and she's, you know, yeah. 
Going to call you want to screw up a drunk state? Yeah, I think you should call Alcoholics Anonymous. Ah. Ah. In 1972, I, I had come home again from stop, and only I was only going to stop and have one or two quick, you know. And I meant that. I, I meant, you know, I meant that I was going to stop and have one or two quick ones and go right home. Okay? But you told me that I had a a physical allergy coupled with a mental compulsion. That set me off, and I was off and running, and I didn't know that. So I would stop at a bar, and I, swearing to you one or two quick ones ago, and what happened is I got home Sunday, and we'd missed another family deal. And what we had missed was my sister-in-law's graduation from nursing school. And that doesn't seem like a giant thing, but it does when you've got two little kids, and you're working a part-time job, and you graduate from nursing school. That's a lot of effort. So I came to again, and, and Mary said, 1972, Mary says to me, you should call AA. And I said, good idea, go ahead. And she got out of bed and went in the kitchen and did. And you know how you can't hear a conversation from another room? You just hear the mumbling. And you're every fiber in your body trying to get this conversation. And she got back in bed and never mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous again and what had happened is that the guy on the other end, or whoever it was on the other end of the line, said I had to call. On well, May 14th, 1976, Mary helped me find the phone number. And she helped me dial it, and I talked to my first alcoholic. And I know he was alcoholic because he told me he was. And he asked me, you know, and I, I, I didn't really talk to him. What I did was is that I cried and I shook. And I carried, and I, I'd never, you know the times where you sat there and you couldn't pull the trigger? That you just couldn't do it? That, that, that empty, that hot, so alone. Just, just alone. Just, you know? And that's what it was. You know? I knew two things. I knew I didn't want to drink anymore and I knew I couldn't quit drinking. And the miracle was, he knew too. And it was all right. It was all right. I wasn't alone. You know, that first whatever happened at 15, that first rush, that, you know, where it, where it goes down, boom, down to your, right back up to your fingertips, right? And, and never again. 15 years of active drinking and the illusion never Happened, I shot right through it every time. I never got what that what that was, you know. I think Jack London described it best, you know, in his book. So he sent me some stuff in a brown envelope, and I wouldn't go to meetings. I got sober on my own. That's a pretty sight, huh? Oh, about a month out, and I'm calling every night. You know, Mary Mary would say to me, she she would say, are you going to a meeting tonight? Are you going to go to a meeting? And I go, well, you know, I talked to these guys on the phone, and they tell me, tell me that this is a very serious thing. And I really have to think it over, not whether I want to join Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> See, at this time, she hadn't been to an Al-Anon meeting, and everything was still working, you know. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I was safe. I was safe, right? But a month later, uh, I drop about 25 pounds, and I'm uh, 
physically getting back into it real good, and, and I'm white-knuckling it, and I'm really out of my mind by this time, because, you know, I mean, it's still here. You know, when does that compulsion leave? You know, when when does, you know, I mean, it's right in your face. Every, every moment of every day, the first thing is thinking of a drink. And I and I, I would ask, I said, you know, does it, when is it going to leave? And the response was, to the day Dr. Bob died, it was in his face. The compulsion never left. You have to, if it's there, if you're still having the problem with compulsion, you know, see me after, we'll pray about it. That even if you don't pray, I'll pray about it, all right? Fake it till you make it. I call this guy up, and this guy happened to be an important part of my life at one time. In my yearbook, he wrote Howard. See, we called each other Howard. We, we had code names, you know. We didn't call. Him. He said Howard never quit drinking. The hell with this good luck stuff. Never quit drinking. Now, what do you think he and I had in common? Huh? Yeah, Mary hated this guy. Boy, this guy show. I'd end up in Ohio, Ohio a couple of times driving around with this guy. You know, the beer was better in Ohio. I don't know. You know. And I was a Muscatel and beer guy, you know. I like to stink for a couple of days. You know? Yeah. Anybody in the Mad Dog 2020? Huh? Yeah, you know why it's fluorescent orange? So you don't step in it when you get up in the morning. Yeah, good stuff. 20, you cut it with vodka. Learned that from a guy we were running a, a, a 10-ton brooch. And that's what he would buy a Bogan David 2020 and half a pint of vodka and fill it back up. Shake it up, we'd be good for the night. In case you were working third shift, can't be awake at night. You know what I mean? Work in a factory. I was still work in a factory. High-speed lathes. Love the job. So I talked to this guy. See, I haven't seen this guy in about three and a half years. And the reason I haven't seen him is that you people told him that if he wanted to stay sober, he had to stay away from wet places. And I was a wet place. He was the best man at my wedding. Three weeks after I got married, I was the best man at his wedding. And at this particular time, he was sober for three and a half years. And I got off the phone and I told Mim, I said, we're going to drive down to Pennsylvania and see this guy. And we did. And she said, oh, my God, not again. And I'll never forget it. We drove down to down to Cuttersport, Pennsylvania. We got out of the car and he was working on the side of his house. And I took one look at him, one look at him, and I knew I wanted what he had. You could see, you could see God as we understand him in his eyes. He wasn't shaking. He looked good. I mean, I was shaking. But I, you know, I can remember going in to Johnny Tulse at the age of 23 when I got hired at Tonawanda Engine. And I'd go in, I'd go in the back and the say, you know where to find a drink, right? You can get, a, a drunk can get off a plane or a train anywhere in the world and in three minutes he's got a drink. It, it's magic. It's, 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 so I'm in Johnny Tosa at, at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and these guys are coming in off the street, right? And I'm sitting there, and they, and they can't, they've got a problem. You see, they can't pick it up because they're shaking so bad. And I'm standing there at 23, you know. I'm cool. I can pick my drink up. And I'm looking down my nose at them, and I'm saying to myself, when I get that bad, I'll quit. I was sober over a year in Alcoholics Anonymous. And finally figured out why you people were only giving me a half a cup of coffee. 
I never, I never saw my hand shake until I was sober that night. Never. So I get out of the car and this guy gives me a, a handshake and takes me to a meeting. I went to Bradford, Pennsylvania. Bradford YWCA. It was a Saturday night. It was a speaker meeting. She was 22 years old. She was a University of Syracuse student. She was, she was a little tall. She was a little on the heavy side. She'd been sober a year. The coffee sucked and I couldn't wait to get out of it. And on the way home, we ate four gallons of ice cream. And I was on my way. We got back home and my wife took me by the hand. It, it, you know, it, I used to think that I had done all these things. But it dawned on me about 10 years of sobriety that I've never done anything alone in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's always been another instrument of God in my life in the form of another human being. Holding my hand, taking me to places that I need to go. So Mary takes me by the hand and we go up and we walk into this church. And we start through the door, and I back up. I said, well, it's got to be the wrong place. She said, why? I said, well, I knew the guy at the podium. He was the janitor at the high school. And the two guys sitting down at the table, the one guy, I dated his daughter. And I knew him, and the guy that sat across from him used to fix my father's car. I said, it's got, it's got to be a church thing or something. And the guy at the podium says, oh, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, my name is welcome And I go, oh, my God, the neighbors heard. <laughs> Not the fact that I parked my car on their front lawn, but the, but the fact that I was in a church going to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Why is that such a secret at first? I was the last guy to find out. You know, every cop I knew knew I had a problem. You know, I, you know, I'd come to it on the holding center, and depending on who was on the on the on the gate there at the desk, uh, if there was one guy, he'd tell me where my car was, and if it was the other guy, he'd make me suffer. You know. He wouldn't tell you nothing. Well, I hated this guy, you know. And I went to the Sunrise Court Sunday morning AA meeting once. He stuck his hand out and welcomed me. The guy that wouldn't let me help me find my car. He passed away a few years ago. He was sober 29 years. So we walk into this silly meeting. And Mary met you people downstairs, where you belong. <laughs> and, you know, you sit there and vibrate. You know, you can always tell the new guy because they vibrate. Did you notice that? I thought they all had pagers for a while, you know. But <laughs> it wasn't. It was just, it was just this, this physical withdrawal thing. And the uh, guy says, you know, you should find a group and join it. And I said, yeah, right. Uh-huh. So at the end of the meeting, this guy says, pick the ashtrays. Remember when you could smoke at AA meeting? I, I couldn't have gotten sober if they told me not to smoke. I was doing like eight packs an hour, you know. And, uh, at any rate, uh, you know, pick up the ashtrays. So I'm picking up the ashtrays. I got my first resentment in Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought, why in the hell am I picking up these ashtrays? You know, who is this guy? Is it, you know. And see, but I found out after, uh, over time, you know, over time you find out that you cannot ask a drunk anything. You have to tell them. If you ask a drunk, would you please pick up the ashtrays? His answer is, see, they know already. Huh? Isn't that great? Everybody you know. Right? You know, it's Saturday night meeting, right? You, you, can, can you go to a meeting tomorrow night? They never asked me that. They would, uh, we'll pick you up tomorrow. Right? Then I got this ridiculous sponsor. You know, he would call up. You know, 
Mother's Day weekend. I didn't even finish that story, for God's sake. I should get back to that. About a year sober. Mother's Day weekend, 1977. I go to this retreat, angry with God. I mean, I didn't believe in God. I didn't want you or God or anyone in my life. I was just doing 100 meetings a week for, just for fear of going to a bar. I knew if I went to an AA meeting, I wouldn't go to a bar. It was that simple. It was, there was nothing complicated about it. You know, I didn't get struck by lightning. I just, I could be in here yelling at you people rather than yelling at a guy that was going to beat me up. You know? And uh, at any rate, uh, my sponsor says, hey, we're going on this spiritual retreat Mother's Day weekend. Sure. You're going to tell somebody that big and ugly? No? I don't think so. So we're, yeah, you know, you get in the car. He picks me up. You get in the car. Okay, we're ready to go. And I get on there, and uh, I, I go through a litany of baloney that I've said for years about uh, God, and, uh, crucifix, and, uh, things that I learned as a child, you know, priests and nuns, and on and on and on, you know, just, you know, trying to work it out. You know, if 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 you've been asked to speak, Al and I should have more speaking. Because if, until you hear, until we say it, right, we don't buy into it. Now, that, that's why AA, you know, our stories disclose in a general way what we, and we don't buy, I wouldn't buy half the things that I've told you until I, until I said it. Now you go through a discussion, you can dodge the bullet and dodge the issue, but if you're talking for an hour, you know what happens? Oh my God, really? I mean, you can just see people just drawn, driven, driven to enlightenment and tears and release and healing. It's a, I should leave that one alone, right? Yeah. <laughs> you made it this far without me, you know? It's a, unless you want to pay me to take over, you know? If it's not a paid position, I'm not going to do it for free. Okay, so I'm off. Good. Is this the part where you were bleeding? Yeah, close, huh? Dives the Okay, I'm in this. I'm at this retreat, and what happens is, is that Saturday morning, we do the Stations of the Cross, and this guy had been sober 34 years. He was this little short priest who actually smoked inside the sanctuary. I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> little short guy, a cigar. Yeah. And he he gave you these pads and pencils, and he went through your inventory with you, and you couldn't talk back because you were in church. And uh, on Saturday morning, uh, and, and, and things that you don't think of, you know, things that you just don't think of, and or at least haven't come to mind yet. It, isn't that a great thing about God, that he waits till around 2 o'clock in the morning to hit you with these, the, yeah, you know, oh, ah, yeah, I get it, now I get it. You know, you wake up right, right out of sleep, and God squints you with one and that, that you forgot about, right? And it messed up your whole day. How many have tried to mess up their day so far? Right after they pray. Yeah. I, I was into that for a while. You know, oh God, you know, help me get through the day. Give me the day. You know, help me stay away from the drink. Then go out and try to kill somebody in my car. Yeah. At any rate, uh, what he had, what this uh, priest had done is he had rewritten the Stations of the Cross. For those of you who are, not, those of you who are non-Catholic, Stations of the Cross are a pictorial description of the crucifixion of Christ. Okay, and I don't want to get into that. And I said the word Christ. Don't forgive me. Pray for me. All right. At any rate, he gives me one to read, and I don't even know what station it is. He said, don't take the book, right? I stole the book. Because <laughs> I, I figured somewhere along the line it would be inspirational or something, you know. And, and I have since lost the book. And he, is, and he has passed away, God love him. At any rate, uh, we get to this station that I'm supposed to read, 
and, and I read my space. And I've still got this, this argument with God. You know, just, I don't want any part of God. I got this argument with God. And everyone leaves the, um, this, and see, this is in a rose garden. The stations of the cross are in this rose garden behind this Colombian father's retreat home. And the stations run this way and this way. And at the end of the garden, there's a crucifix that's even bigger than Leo. You know, you, you, we're dealing with a person with an inferiority complex with an ego bigger than this room. Okay. And I'm standing there and shaking my little angry fist up at God. And uh, he put his hand on this shoulder. And he was from Erie, Pennsylvania. And they had found him in an alley the week before. And a couple of guys from AA, one guy took him home and gave him a bath and cleaned him up. Gave him a place to stay, gave him some new clothes, and they thought it would be a good idea for this guy to come on this retreat, maybe find God and get sober. And he put his hand on my shoulder, and he had long gray hair. I don't remember his name. He had long gray hair, and his glasses had white tape where they'd repaired them. And he said to me, he said, excuse me. He said, uh, I'm not Catholic. Do you know what I-N-R-I stands for? Top of the crucifix. And I knew. At that, you know, we talk in this program about moments of clarity. You know, standing in Monty's grill in a moment of clarity and seeing who I was. And and moments of clarity are things that happen within God's grace. And everyone gets God's grace and moments of clarity. It's that within that moment of grace, we have to make the decision to either live within it or not. So in this moment of clarity, I'm standing in this garden and I know who God is. I know that all those things that I was taught as a child, all that effort that was put in to giving me the tools to live within God's grace, I know. I don't use it yet, but I know it. I go about my business. You see, it takes a little time in recovery to start to use all these things, you know. I just went right back to who I was, you know. I can remember him holding me. He was holding me on a bench overlooking Lake Erie, and I would just cry and sob, and the pain of 31 years was finally coming out. It was finally coming out, you know. Low self-esteem, no self-worth, and that devastating agony that's stuck in here. He reached down into that cesspool that I was crawling around with and he lifted me up. So I joined this group. And and these guys are tough. These guys are tough. At that time, we had cups and saucers. Checking the time. I don't know. If anybody dozes off, I'll know I've gone too long. We had cups and saucers. That was a big argument when we went to styrofoam cups. Three guys left the group. Yeah, you you see, and the reason being was the way they got sober was with, with through dishpan hands. They got sober washing cups and saucers, and they felt everybody in AA should have dishpan hands and wash cups and saucers. They opened their own group, the cup and saucer group. <laughs> that's not the name of it, incidentally, but that's the. I used to go up, you know, and hey, how, how you been? You know, how's the cup and saucer group coming? Right? And then I would ask them for more coffee in my styrofoam cup. Great guys, great guys. At any rate, the guy says, well, no, you're in, 
what, what happens to you, they get you into the kitchen, and then they start working on you. You know? You know you're in trouble in AA when they start dragging you over to the side to talk to you. And did you notice that you're the one in the corner? You know, they put you in the corner, and then there's nowhere to go. So I joined this group, and the guy says, you know, we're going to have a business meeting next Wednesday before the meeting. So you should come. You remember now. and See how it works. So I come. And they have this business meeting, and they, they elect a speaker seeker, and they elect a Wednesday chair, and there's a, uh, a PIC guy and all this stuff. And, they get, and the Matt Talbot group, which is the group that, that was the name of it, uh, they had a Saturday night meeting. So they needed a guy for Saturday night KP and Saturday night setup. And this guy says, he says, I nominate Leo. And the guy, I go, well, wait a minute. See, I had more important things to do. Then, I mean, I was into doing neurosurgery in the garage. One, though, my favorite one was, I would say, well, I'm trying to rebuild relationships with the family. (laughs) They were so happy I was out of the house, you know. They were hoping I'd move into AA and stay there, you know. The madman was gone, you know. We could be little kids without being, you know. You know, that, that's, that's one of the things that, that alcohol took my youngest. You know, when, it, it's just the little things that bother us, you know. Not wrecking the car, you know. I never saw his first steps. You see, and that bothers me. That bothers me. And, and, and the oldest guy, if I raise my voice just enough and get that look in my eye, he remembers the beating. You know, for the rest of his life, he's going to remember that madman coming after him. You know? I can remember with 10 years of sobriety and after Alateen that I'm sitting at a counselor's office with this 13-year, 14-year-old young man who's dying to tell me how much he hates me. And through enough time and through enough prayer, he was able to say that. And that took down... For him, a barrier that allowed him to move closer to me because he wasn't letting me in. And he'll never forget. And I hope he doesn't because if he forgets, I might try it again. I might just try it again. See, so the pain that we start dealing with and the pain that gets dragged out of us, you know, no limits. No limits. We don't skate. When I first got sober, he said, you know, Leo, he said, getting sober makes you available for a wealth of everything. Good and bad. Painful and joyful. He said, and the beauty part of it is, you'll remember it. You'll know that it's happening. You'll know that it's going on. So. One guy says, ah, I moved up with closed nominations. The other guy says, I second it. And the secretary cast one ballot. And I'm the Saturday Night KP guy. And they gave me a key. And I hated him for it. I go home, yell at Mary and the kids. And I don't tell them I don't know how to make coffee. (laughs) It's Saturday night. I'm walking down the street and I'm walking fast. Walk fast when you're mad. Did you notice that? And I've got this key in my hand, and about halfway down the street, I run out of breath, and I, it catches up to me, and I'm walking down the street. And you know when you just get filled? You know, you know when, when finally it dawns on you, you finally get to read the letter? I've got this key. And you know how long it had been since I'd been somebody? They gave me a key to a church. Right? 
They trusted me. I mean, when you suffer from low self-esteem and no self-worth, then they make you somebody. Right? Forty cups of coffee, one pound of hills. Yeah. Huh? And they drank it. They drank it. Yes, sir. Huh? Yes, sir. After the meeting, he says to me, he said, Leo, I'd like to talk to you. And, and he said, you know, when I first started making coffee here, I, he said, I, uh, I didn't, didn't know how to do it. And he said, uh, he said they have this little measuring cup. And he said, one, so one of these 40 cups of coffee is perfect. He didn't call me, didn't tell me I was foolish or I screwed up or anything. He shared his experience with me. And we're more alike than we are different. And that's, that's what keeps us in these rooms, is that we are more alike than we are different. Is that we are, I am what you are. He was from Cleveland, New York. He was a taxi cab driver. Beautiful man. First black man I heard speak in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he, I am what you are! I thought I was at a revival. <laughs> Man frightened me. He came to speak at the 20th anniversary of the Matt Talbot. He was murdered two years ago. And somebody tried to take the money out of his cap. But he stayed long enough, sober enough, long enough to touch me in a way that I found out that I am what you are. What a message. Huh? What a message. About a year later, I say to this guy, I say, hey, you know, uh, how do I get out of the Saturday KP thing? <laughs> and he says, Leo, once you find someone dumber than you. <laughs> and that Wednesday night, in the door he walked. <laughs> and, you know, after a little over a year, I had a tough time giving that job up because it had become Leo's meeting. I finally had an identity with someone. It was my meeting, done my way. You people were getting sober. The blizzard of 77. There's five feet of snow. I've got a broken down uh, snow plow in front of my house. Seven feet of snow drifts 50 feet high. It's Wednesday night. So the next lesson is be careful who you call an Alcoholics Anonymous. First lesson in Alcoholics Anonymous is if you tell somebody something that you don't want them to repeat, you tell them right up front. You tell anybody this, I'll rip your lungs out. Okay? And that way you can't go, oh, I told them that. I didn't think we are going to discuss that at the meeting. <laughs> you know? Your responsibility to maintain confidence. If you, right, you, I talked to my sponsor. I sit down at a discussion table. That's the topic. You know? It gives these guys, these, these sharks, you see. You know? So if you want someone to know something, but you don't want them to pass it on, you let them know right up front. You know, I'm only human. You know, because when I get to the meeting, he says, anyone have a topic for discussion? I said, well, yeah, well, Pat's having trouble with his wife, so I think we should talk about that. <laughs> you know, and then he goes, I'll kill him, I'll kill him. You know? <laughs> so, you know, you know, be a little flexible, you know, a little. So, Pat's not having trouble with his wife, honest. <laughs> you know? At least not. she's not going to tell him about it. Right? It's, it's, So, you know, and, and, and that's how it went, you know. I, I, they made me treasurer, you know. You make a thief treasurer, right? People are very loving. I love that, you know. And uh, I'm treasurer for a while, and I got a little book, and I'm writing down you know, KP stuff. Well, I'm going. Uh, and uh, he says to me, uh, after the meeting, I reach into the basket to get the money. 
Does anybody's group say if you need a couple bucks, take it anymore? Huh? They used to. Yeah, what happened to that? What happened to that? See, all the old guys say, yeah, how well, come we stop that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we have no dues or fees, but we do have expenses. And if you need a couple bucks, go ahead and take it. Now, if you say that, your people beat you up. You know? What do you mean you give that guy a guy might drink with it? Yeah, that sounds like a good idea to me. If he stinks and he's shaking, he might need a drink, you know. So, we're, we're okay, so I'm reaching my hand, and his hand touches mine, and he says, uh, I want to talk to you after the meeting. Everybody leave. And uh, we had a cup of coffee, and he's on the one side of the table, and I'm on the other. And he says to me, he says, you know, Leo, you have to put it back. I knew he knew that I knew he knew I knew he knew he knew I knew and, uh, because being a thief had uh, become a way of life I got my shirt out of the hat and he said to me he said you know he said Leo he said you know why we steal he said we steal because it's become a way of life went from a habit and a necessity to a way of life and he said you don't have to do that anymore he said, just put the money back. And we finished our coffee and I went home. He didn't run to the group and say, hey, Gregory's a thief. He's stealing our money. We should throw him out. What he did is that he sat down and he shared his experience, strength, and hope. That I may not have to do these. I haven't found it necessary to steal anything since that day. I didn't know I did not have to. I didn't know things like that when you got in bed with a woman that you didn't have to have sex. See, I learned all about sex for $5 a pop in Southeast Asia. And that's what I brought into my marriage. That's all I knew. I didn't know that you could simply hold someone's hand and come. I didn't know that I don't know is the answer in most situations. That I do not have to have all the answers. Because at one time, I could solve all your problems. I knew the answers well before I knew what the question was. But that's another story. When I was growing up, after my mom died, my father, my grandmother, and my aunt took care of me. And at 3.15, what we would do is that we'd wait across the street for the factory to get out. So I learned, and, and my father would come across the street, and he'd take my hand, and we'd get on to Roski. And I learned, at a very young age, how to become a man. You get a job in a factory. You learn how to drink shots and beers. And you learn how to play you. And you're there. Right? So I still work in a factory running high speed lathes. Did you notice that? So I see, I know, I had my career pick up for me. Well, at the age of uh, 15, we stole some beer, trying to prove our manhood. And I suppose that every guy in here has tried to prove their manhood. I think it's a, a right or something. I don't know. And that's okay when you're 15. But when you're 30, you're supposed to be there. You're supposed to be that man. Well, one night I was getting ready for the meeting, and I gave my youngest a, a bath, dried him off, and combed his hair, and I said, "Run downstairs and give mom a kiss goodnight." He ran downstairs, said to Mary, he "said How do I look, mom?" She said, "You look real handsome." And he said, "Yep, like a man going to an AA meeting." Thank you for being here today, and God bless you. <laughs>